Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're here for another episode. Great conversation today with Jim McKelvey. I was so honored to have him on the show. He's a serial entrepreneur, an inventor, a philanthropist, an artist. He's an author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time, which we talk about on here. He's the co-founder of Square, a product which has been great for my business and great for my daughter and her freelance and her artist artistry and the commissions that she does. He served as the chairman of, of its board until 2010 on Square, and he still serves on the board of directors. In 2011, his iconic card reader design was inducted into the Museum of Modern Art. McKelvey also founded Invisibly, It's an ambitious project to rewire the economics of online content. He did that in 2016, and he's an independent director of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. He's a glassblower. He's an artist. And in 2009, he was trying to sell a certain piece of artwork for $2,000 to this woman, and he lost the sale because he couldn't accept American Express cards. And so this frustration, along with the high cost and difficulty of accepting credit card payments, which it really is, it was one of the big headaches of starting Dose of Leadership. McKelvey joined his friend Jack Dorsey, who's the co-founder of Twitter, and they launched Square. We talk about that startup process in here. It's also a major part of his book, The Innovation Stack. But we talk about how they started up, the challenges of that, and his amazing story that you'll hear in this conversation, the against-the-odds survival of a direct attack from Amazon, you know, really the most dangerous company on the planet if you think about it. And he survived. They survived. And he reveals how he did that and how sticking to and having the confidence and the tenacity and the belief that because they were the innovators, because they were the one that was coming up with the, the groundbreaking, no one else done it before type of idea, that gave them kind of a comp- competition-proof pattern that allowed them to survive. And the book is all about how can you do that? How can you pursue that? It's a great first-person look inside the world of true entrepreneurship and the mindset that's needed to do that and the call to action for all of us, to the entrepreneur in ourselves, the leader in ourselves, to identify and fix unsolved problems and go for it and embrace that crazy idea and have the confidence. It really is the kind of foundation for surviving against all odds. It's a great conversation. Hey, this show is brought to you by my services here at Dose of Leadership. I know and I see it time and time again with all the organizations that I've worked in, that I've worked for, that I've coached. There's a huge vacuum of effective culture and effective leadership in most organizations, even the successful ones. Let's face it, with all the challenges of leadership, bad, mediocre leadership and management is a death sentence in today's environment. So if you're an organization that's needing to develop an effective leadership culture, if you've become dissatisfied with the status quo and mediocre results, Take a look at my leadership training. It's a refreshing and effective dose of common sense, time-tested principles. Principles that have proven to deliver lasting behavior change in individuals and effective cultural improvement overall. I don't look at myself as a traditional consultant. In fact, I hate that word consultant. I don't wrap my flag around flavor of the month methodologies or overly cumbersome process improvement techniques that typically demand significant investment from you and additional resources. Look, my programs are focused inward. I'm a firm believer that all that you need is already inside your organization, both in your individuals and as a collective as a whole. I'm all about streamlining your current systems and redeploying your already existing talent. No additional resources are needed. Working together is a unique, customized, collaborative process. I am an arrow in your quiver. A deep personal involvement with you, your personnel, and all your resources, and most engagements can be solved within one to six months, but longer engagements are possible if needed. Regardless of what we decide to do at the core, I will help you create a leadership culture of decentralized decision-making, where the leadership responsibility is spread throughout the entire organization, where senior leaders become effective at strategy and intent, and the middle and below become experts of empowered execution. That is the secret sauce that I deliver to all of you with all my programs, this philosophy of decentralized control, where inept leadership behaviors, departmental silos, inadequate innovation, and lack of execution become dysfunctions of the past. If this sounds like something you're interested in, if you want me to be the arrow in your quiver and be that leadership culture integrator, then take a look at doseofleadership.com. Watch a five-minute video where I elaborate more on this and talk about a success, a home run I did with ECRS software, where I did that with them for 12 months 
helped create a decentralized culture of leadership and was a rousing success. Find out more at doseofleadership.com. Thanks for being a listener of this show. Take the time to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite uh, podcast app, be it Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever it is. Please tell two people today about this show and turn them on to it and leave a review. And I appreciate this latest one I got on January 8th from Thinker Photo, at Thinker Photo. I don't know who it is, but he or she says Dose of Leadership is easily one of the top three podcasts to listen to for positive self-development. Thank you so much. Richard is a skilled interviewer who consistently hosts conversations with unique yet exceptional leaders. I also appreciate his monologue episodes where he generally confesses and analyzes profound lessons from his personal experiences. Thank you, at Thinker Photo. I appreciate that. Tell you what, at Thinker Photo, reach out to me directly at richard at doseofleadership.com. I'll give you free access to my Legacy Leader Blueprint course, a course that'll help you become a better leader. Reach out to me directly. All right, enough with the plugs. Let's get on with the show with Jim McKelvey. A fascinating conversation here on Dose of Leadership. Jim, so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you, Richard. That's going to be fun. I was excited when, when your publicist reached out to have me on the show. And I, was, I couldn't believe, I was like, man, this, is, this would be great. Because I have been a user of Square. And I'm, I tell you, for a small-time operator like myself, um, it's just done wonders uh, for, for the small business owner. So, so it's, it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, it's, it's fun to be here. And I just found out that, uh, that you and I are both pilots. Yeah. So we've got some, you know, more things in common than we knew. I know. I mean, it just kind of, it, we were like, for the listeners, we were talking before the recording, we just kind of found out that both of us have a passion for aviation. So that's very cool. Well, so are you an artist by, by trade? I was reading some things that you did some glass blowing. Are, are, would you consider yourself an artist? No, I, I never thought of myself as an artist. I was, uh, you know, I sort of thought of myself as a nerd and an engineer. And I got into art because I needed money. Uh, strangely enough, when I graduated and started my first company, I didn't have any income. And I knew how to blow glass which uh, to me was more of a craft than an art. Right. But it turns out you get more money uh, if you call yourself an artist. So I call myself an artist and I show in galleries and I do all the art things. But at my core, I think I'm a guy who likes to build things. And glass is a wonderful material to work with. And I love working with it. And it's, um, it's so much fun. As a matter of fact, I'm going into the studio today uh, to make a retirement gift for a lady I worked with at the Fed. So it's... It's it's been a passion, but uh, I've I've never thought of myself as an artist, and I have very few black clothes. <laughs> well, so how did you get started in glass blowing? I mean, I've always been fascinated by that. There was some I was watching on Netflix. I can't remember the name of it. Dang it! But it was like a series that must have been on one of those channels. Oh that, yeah. Like, kind of- so so Janus, who who came in uh, second in that series, yeah. is coming to my studio uh, next weekend. Really. Yeah, and I met him 25 years ago in London. I mean, there's the glassblowing community is really small. Um, I got into it basically because I needed money. And when I started my f- first company, uh, I, I didn't have an income, and I knew how to blow glass, and I thought maybe I could sell my work. And it turned out I couldn't because my work was pretty terrible. But it's amazing how good you can get at something if you decide, this is what I'm going to do for a living. Right. Right. So I just woke up one morning as like, I got to pay the rent and I better get good with a, you know, with a blowpipe uh, pretty quickly. And so within a month, I had, you know, up the caliber of my work to the point where I could start selling. And then glass is really wonderful because it's such an interesting material that even if your work isn't technically perfect, the object you make is still many times beautiful. So I was able to sell a lot of stuff as I was improving my skills. And then once my skills got to a point where I could actually support myself, um, I had a really good gig, uh, you know, m- much like you were telling me how you get to fly, uh, f- fly airliners, you know, several days a month. And it's a really good gig. Uh, I was able to go into the studio at nights and on weekends um, and make enough work that I could support myself. And then so during the day, I could work on my companies. That's amazing. I, I love that. The idea is like, man, I needed money. So what did I have to do? Glass blowing. It's usually, it seems like it's, it's the reverse. It's like, you've got the artist who's like, I'm going to be this professional glass blower and they do something else to support that. It was kind of, it's kind of flipped. Right. And so what, was- yeah. So glass is weird because glass is about risk. And when you are working with glass, the ability to make a shape is proportional to the heat that you're able to uh, manage. In other words, the hotter you get the glass, 
the softer it is, right. which means the easier you can form it into different shapes, but the harder it is to preserve those shapes mm-hmm. because it gets very delicate. It, it, it wants to collapse. So the better glass blowers work very, very hot. And as you begin to improve your skill, you work faster and faster and faster. And a funny thing happens. The better you get, the higher the quality of your work is, but also the higher the quantity because you're working really fast. So a piece that, you know, let's say I'm a beginner and I make a piece and it takes me an hour. Uh, A professional would make that same piece in 10 minutes and it would look better. So the professional is not only making better stuff, they're making more of it. So in glass, at some point you hit this inflection point where you just start making a ton of really good stuff. And at that point, almost always you end up sales constrained. In other words, you're able to make so much stuff that you're not able to sell it. So in my case, I was able to uh, build a network of galleries around the country to sort of handle my production. Uh, and then I just go into the studio and crank stuff out. Um, and I do it to this day. That's cool. And so was this was this in college, pre-college, post-college? When did you start this? this- I, I, I started senior year of college. And then I did it post-college because I needed money. I mean, it was it was literally one morning I woke up and I didn't have a job. And I said, man, Jim, how are you going to pay the rent? <laughs> and the answer was, I didn't have any marketable skills. Oh, my gosh. You know? Um, uh, so well, I, I thought, well, maybe I can make a, make some money selling glass. And it turns out that, uh, I could. So that's, that's how it all started and continues to this day. I love that. What, so what was the dream in college? I mean, what were you majoring in? What were you hoping to do? What was the idea? I, I didn't have much direction. I started as an economics, uh, major. Then I switched over to the engineering school and I did degrees in both economics and computer science. Um, I wasn't a particularly good computer scientist, but, uh, I was able to, learn enough to get really frustrated with computers. <laughs> right. And then I realized that there were no good textbooks. So when I was in college, I actually wrote a computer textbook to replace the text that had been published by um, my professor. <laughs> so I kind of got on the wrong side of the uh, the department chair by, by replacing his text uh, with <laughs> one that I wrote. Um, so then he and I got into this sort of fight for a couple of years. There was a student uh, writing textbooks and it was, it was this sort of big drama uh, at Washington U. But, uh, but I got this really funny thing uh, out of writing a textbook when I was an undergraduate, and that was people thought I was a lot better than I was. So they, th- they thought I was a really good computer scientist because I had you know two textbooks pr- published. But in fact, what I was is just a guy who worked really hard. And um, so what happened was I got invited to be all on all the good teams. And what I learned really early was how to be a member of a team where I was sort of the weakest link. And I learned how to work with people and make them more productive. And that was sort of the skill that I brought out of the engineering school. I didn't learn a tremendous amount of sort of technical stuff, but I learned really well how to work with people who were brilliant um, on teams where I was you know, not as smart as my colleagues. Well, and, and looking back, I mean, that is, that's the more um, in demand or more, um, valuable skill. I think when you're in the middle of it, I agree with you. I was a computer science major too. And, and, um, I think a lot of us, it goes to kind of the old, the myth that it's, you, you, the talent is what's going to drive success. And and the talent really doesn't equal success. You gotta be, it's a given, right? You gotta be good at something. And it's kind of like what I'm hearing you say is like, well, you were good enough. And that's, and sometimes that's, that's all it takes in, the real mark, what's needed or what drives success isn't the fact that you were the best coder or the best technical computer science that it, that it is. Does it make sense? I mean, the, the more marketable thing was, hey, it was the, it, that's really the, the leadership side of the coin is what you, you probably didn't know it at the time. But I mean, that's what really what was getting formed where you found that 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 was where your best contribution was anyway. Yes. Uh, to me, it was a survival skill yeah. because I was so worried that people would find out that I wasn't as good as everyone thought I was, that I learned, uh, first of all, how to shut up. You know, yeah. I, I, oh, Actually, I haven't entirely. I still say <laughs> stuff that gets me in trouble. Um, but uh, I, I learned how to shut up better than I did when I was an undergrad. Um, and I learned how to work with people who were really, really good at what they do and to help them. Uh, one of the things that... Uh, that I find in all the companies that I start now is that I'll collect around me uh, people who are really, really good at stuff. And then I turn into 
essentially their servant. I will get them the resources they need. I'll, I'll do anything to get the people who are working with me, uh, the, the tools and colleagues that will make them successful. And that's sort of the mode I naturally go into. And, and that began as a survival skill. That began because, you know, I was put on these engineering teams that had these projects that I couldn't begin to handle by myself, but I collected people around me who could do it. And then I would have to work to make sure that they were able to, uh, you know, to do their best. And uh, it turns out that's a pretty good skill to have. Man, that resonates with me deeply because I, I think back, I mean, I know exactly what you mean. I, I, I wanted to be, I didn't really want to be a computer scientist, but I thought, well, I remember reading an article in like Fortune magazine or Forbes or something at the time. And then like the top jobs are going to pay. And I'm like, oh, I better do this. And it wasn't my passion. And I did it and I was okay with it like you. But I mean, I, I was around these other, you know, guys that could code in their sleep, you know, like, I, and I, I, I know what you mean. And then I find myself and I, I was just kind of plagued with these limiting beliefs and this doubt about, I mean, I don't really belong here. But I, what I excelled at, like you, is, okay, well, I'm going to, serve these other people and help them become better. Right. And it, yeah. it was like the, I get what you're saying that it was a survival mechanism. You're like, Oh man, I don't belong in this space. What, what can I do? And you just kind of gravitated towards where you, you thought you could best contribute probably unconsciously. Like you said, it was a survival skill, but that's what was happening. Yes. And you know, uh, you just said something really important, which is that you didn't feel qualified. Um, and I know what that feels like. And I feel that way. Every time I do something significant, I recognize my lack of qualification to do whatever I'm doing. Um, and when I became a glassblower, I had no qualifications. I mean, I had never, never studied art. Um, I didn't have an MFA. I, I, I mean, I had zero experience the morning I woke up and said, well, this is how I'm going to make, make a living. Like I'd had, I'd had probably a year's worth of studio time, which is nothing. Um, no formal training, no education. I mean, just, I just went into it. And, um, and when I wrote my computer textbooks, I was an undergraduate. I had, I had literally zero experience. So I know what it feels like to go into a profession and, and have no qualification. It, oh, I, I just, there's so many things. My brain is just spinning because I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And it's a theme that, that is consistently reveals itself in these conversations on the show over the last seven years. And I, I think it's important. I hope people who are listening to this understand that that fear, that uncertainty, that kind of never fitting in this space. I mean, Barbara Corcoran was on here. She said the same thing. She still goes back to that space. E even now, you know, Steve Forbes said it. You're saying it now. That should be a, a huge reliever to everyone listening to this is that it doesn't, that fear, uncertainty, that limit belief, it never goes away no matter what you're going into. But what I, I find interesting, and I, and I kind of want to get into your mindset of what keeps you going forward, is like you don't feel like you belong in this space. I heard you say already, like, well, I did this because I had to survive, I had to get money. So I understand that too. But what, what do you think prevents, you know, two people side by side, I got you and you, and you got me and, and we're, we're both experiencing the same circumstances, lack of money, same situation, whatever the case may be. You take the leap forward. I don't. What do you, th what, what's the difference maker? Do you think, why is the, does one person, even, given all things being equal, we're experiencing the same thing, have the same situations in front of us. I don't take the leap you do. What do, what's the difference, do you think? So what I've, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know how everybody else thinks, but um, in my world, I feel more comfortable doing something that I don't know how to do than doing nothing. Uh, yeah, I like that. Say that again, okay. because that, that, I, I get what you're saying, but say that again. So I, I, I'm... There's something about me that is more comfortable doing something that I don't know how to do than doing nothing. Standing around while something bad happens or when I see a problem. And, and by the way, almost everything that I've ever done successfully is motivated at its core by some problem I care about. Um, I'm not particularly driven by money. I'm not particularly driven by pretty much anything except uh, this, this form of frustration. It's, it's almost an anger. When I see something that's wrong and I want to fix it, that's when I get going. And when I see something wrong, there's this thing that just compels me forward, even though I know I'm not qualified to do it. Um, and that feeling is the thing that I think gets me going. Now, the interesting thing is once I'm going, then it's just survival. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
so uh, if if I can use an example of from from aviation, which you know you and I kind of share, like I, as a as a student pilot, I once got trapped on three sides by a thunderstorm, and I was terrified. I I you know it was a VFR day. I was a VFR pilot, which means I was not legally able to fly into clouds. I was in a little Mooney, a tiny little plane, and I was following this plane you know, a couple miles ahead of me and he got into a storm and all of a sudden I looked around and I realized I was trapped on three sides and I had to get down fast and I was terrified. Um, but at that point, it's just a question of, you know, you have to fly the plane, you know what you have to do. It wasn't like I was noble or, you know, heroic for doing the stuff that I had to do. It's like, oh, well, I've got five things I got to do. First of all, I got to find an airport. Secondly, I got to fly to the airport. Third thing, I got to set up for a landing. I got to remember to put the gear down. Yeah. I, I, like all this stuff that you think is, uh, heroic or like you have to have motivation. No, there's, there's no motivation required. Yeah, right. It's now it, survival. That's right. I, and, 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 and I, I study these entrepreneurs and I've looked at, you know, probably the last hundred years of, of really successful entrepreneurs. And what I've noticed is a lot of the people who are super successful are not necessarily brave or bold. They're just people who started something and then refused to quit. That is such a salient point. I, I love that you brought – you're so true because the hardest part is actually getting is, – is, is starting that something. And, but yeah. once you start, the, you're absolutely right. The, it it's actually becomes somewhat easy. It's because it's kind of like you know, another aviation analogy like solely landing on the Hudson, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah. E like, it's, what are you going to do? It's well, easy that's to, my option. That's right. It's easy to be <laughs> cor courageous in that situation, right? Because it's either life or death. And so I'm going to choose life and I'm going to do whatever I can as much and I'll fight it until see where it goes. Yeah. You, you just sucked a bunch of Canadian geese into both engines. Uh, now what are you going to do? And, and there's a river. So put it down. That's right. So the, you're absolutely right. The, so once you start, it becomes a survival piece. And it's kind of like it, it goes to – I love how you said, um, I, I don't like what it's going. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to start. It's kind of like the, this, the, um, how you started Square. I mean you were yeah. frustrated by these – going back to your glass blowing. You're doing the glass blowing. You can't accept American Express cards, right? And so that led to this frustration of seeing all the high costs that all these major credit card – companies are charging and so you and and jack founder of twitter started square right and did i get that right yeah you nailed it and it was exactly right uh, i was in my studio trying to sell a piece of glass i couldn't take the sale because the lady only had an american express card i lost the sale i got upset and then um ironically jack and i had already agreed to start a new company we'd hired a team um to begin uh we had our first employee starting and we were looking for an idea. We had another idea that we were going to pursue. And then I lost this sale and I got mad. And I said, man, this is something I'd like to fix because I knew what it was like for me as a small merchant to lose sales because I couldn't take a credit card. And I, you know, this wasn't the first time that had happened, but all of a sudden, uh, you know, Jack and I are deciding to start this new company. And I said, well, here's a problem I really care about. So I pitched Jack on the idea. And uh, a couple of days later, we just, decided that that was going to be the focus of our new company. And that's what became Square. So let's, and I think you talk about this in your new book, uh, The Innovation Stack. How did you, we talked about taking the leap. You took the leap. Okay, now it's survival. I mean, that this the whole Square story is that, right? It's a, <laughs> it's a survival story, is it not? Well, it is in the beginning because when we started Square, we realized very early, as a matter of fact, the first full day of work, uh, I realized that we were breaking a bunch of rules and a couple of laws. And as we dug further, I eventually counted 17 rules, regulations, or laws that Square was violating with each transaction. Holy cow. Uh, and so this was this moment where we looked at it and, um, you know, sometimes when you're doing something new and innovative, you say, well, why hasn't anybody else done this? You know, uh, and uh, in our case, it was pretty obvious because uh, there were all these regulations to prevent exactly what we were doing. And so we spent three weeks getting all of our tech working. So that was the credit card reader, all the software, the decode, the servers, moving money. We literally had a product that would uh, swipe a credit card and put that money in a bank account, uh, fully operational in three weeks. It took us 18 months to get 
that system compliant with all the rules and laws. And in most cases, we had to change our system to become compliant. But in some cases, we actually had to change the rules. So during that 18 months, did you just, were you banging your head against the wall? Were you going crazy or was it, I mean? Uh, Yeah. I mean, well, it was, it was this great risk because we kept hoping that we would be able to eventually get compliant because you can't release a system like Square without being compliant with the banking regulations. And so as we worked through those regulations, we realized that there were a couple uh, that the credit card organizations had that specifically prevented what Square was doing. And so there was no question, but in those cases, we had to get the card companies to change. And so this was really scary because MasterCard and Visa particularly had rules that they had written specifically to prevent what we were doing. And so we had to meet with them and convince them to change their rules. And I tell this story in the book about a meeting uh, with an executive MasterCard and um, his name was Ed McLaughlin. He's a great guy. I mean, he's now you know sort of a friend because he was the guy. He was the first guy at a major uh, credit card uh, network that looked at what we were doing and said, we have to support this. And we went in with a fully working demo and we showed him what could be. But I mean, if he had said no, I don't think I'd be talking to you right now. I think we probably would have perished because you know there was a it was a bet the company moment and uh, and we'd already built everything to work. But you know if Mastercard had said no, we wouldn't be here. What made him say yes? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I hope it was a good demo. I hope it was the fact that uh, we were helping a lot of merchants and Mastercard and Visa are in the business of trying to get more merchants to accept their cards. So it was something that they should have said yes to, but. Um, Anyone who's worked with a large company knows that a lot of seemingly rational decisions are not made because of some other reason. So there could have been some politics. There could have been some pressure. It could have been just inertia. I mean, there are a bunch of reasons why good decisions don't get made, especially in large organizations. So we really, I, I would say we got lucky. I mean, we worked really hard, but you know, luck played a part. But the tenacity piece had to be huge. I mean, obviously looking back with, with the wisdom perspective now and seeing how the path went. I mean, at the end of the day, you were still being tenacious. You had this vision of, I mean, 18 months, you know, breaking 17, uh, you know, you're like, hey, this is great. Why is anybody doing it? Oh, it's because there's 17 things here that I need to be compliant with. That would stop most people. Well, yeah. I mean, some people uh, say, uh, I'll stop. And other people say, no, you're going to change your rules. And it turns out Jack and I were kind of inspired by the fact that what we were doing was specifically prohibited. And look, you know, there's a good way to look at it and a bad way to look at it. The, 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 the bad way is to say, oh my God, there are all these barriers uh, to us doing this thing. Uh, the good way to look at it is say, boy, if we do this thing, there are all these barriers to prevent everybody else from copying us. So, um, you know, once we got through the minefield, uh, we kind of had uh, the market to ourselves for a couple of years. But then, um, then the copycats started showing up, and one in particular uh, was Amazon. And Amazon is terrifying. Yes. So what happened in Square's case was about uh, four years in to us having the product out and growing like crazy, and millions of little customers who, you know, were loving our system, uh, Amazon came out with a clone of our product. They copied our software. They copied our hardware. I mean, they, they made a couple of changes, which they thought improved the system, but their basic move, uh, which they've executed flawlessly in dozens of other industries is they copy what you're selling. They undercut your price by 30%. They add the Amazon brand to it. They add whatever other things they can bundle in. In Amazon's case, they added live technical support, which uh, Square didn't have at the time. We, we have it now, but we didn't have it back then. And then they watch you die. Right. Uh, or, they, or they swoop in and buy you. And I found a dozen companies that they had done this to. And every time it worked, every time Amazon just ended up owning that company or just owning the market. So when you and, found, go ahead. No, no, please. I was going to say, so when you found Amazon fixing bayonets, <laughs> and they're, yeah. you know, they're on your front line. Are you digging in? Are you scared? Are you talking about compromise? Are you talking about surrender? What is it? What, what, what was the mindset? So, I mean, first there's that, you know, sort of cold feeling of panic. 
uh, where you realize you're really in trouble and there's not much you can do. Um, we then had several meetings, uh, you know, in the company um, where we discussed what a potential response to Amazon would be. Um, and I went out immediately looking for examples of companies that had beat Amazon. I thought, well, maybe we can copy the solution from somebody else who's, you know, shown us how to, how to slay this dragon. And nobody had done it. I mean, I couldn't find anybody. Um, and then the funny thing, uh, Richard, was we, we looked at what we were doing. And everything we were doing, we thought we should continue doing, uh, including keeping our price where it was. So our price was uh, 2.75%. It was a flat fee at the time. And Amazon was like uh, like 1.9 something percent, like 1.95. Or they were under 2%. They were about 30% lower than our price, which which is their standard move. They always, right. they under, they, for some reason, they always undercut you by 30%. Um, but uh you know, we looked at this and we said, we're not going to change anything. We made an active decision to not change a thing. In response to Amazon, we didn't do anything. And, uh, and that was really funny because the reasons we were doing everything, when you, when you traced it back to its core, were to serve our clients. So we had a rate that allowed us to serve our clients. And if we had cut our rate artificially low, we would not have been able to survive and serve our client. And if we had changed the way we did anything, even including our hardware, um, we would not have uh, been serving our clients the way we thought was best. So we didn't do anything differently. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, it went on for a little over a year. And then one day, Adam is on just suddenly quit. They just said, we're out. And, 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 and by the way, I, I got to give Amazon props on this. They were so cool about the way they quit. When they gave up the credit card processing market, they sent all of their customers a Square reader really? and said, yeah, uh, Amazon's not going to do this anymore, but you should go to Square. So Amazon ended up uh, helping us <laughs> at the end. But um, so, I, I mean, I have to say, you know, hats off to the way they uh finish that. But, oh my God, it's so terrifying. And after we won, I was bothered by the question, why did Amazon win? Like, how come I just found a dozen other companies that Amazon has eviscerated and how come Square has survived? And I couldn't, um, uh, I, I, I couldn't figure it out. But that was the thing that led me to write this book because I spent three years looking for the answer. And when I finally found what I thought was the answer, I said, oh my God, this is, this is a pattern. It's not just something that happened to Square. It's something that's happened to hundreds of companies throughout history. And in every case that I found, those companies ended up dominating their industries. And I was like, oh my God, this is a pattern. I got to tell people about it. So that's why I wrote the innovation stack. Yeah. So, I mean, my mind is just racing. I mean, what, so what, what did you, after three years, what does the book tell me? What is, why did you survive? I think I know what it is, but I want to hear what you, what was it? Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you this and then, then you don't have to buy the book, right? Um, <laughs> no, uh, no, no. Uh, but because I, I really want, even if, look, even if you don't buy the book, I want people to understand the pattern here. And the pattern is caused by the decision to do something different, yes. to solve a problem that has not been solved before. And that's the equivalent of, you know, taking off. Like once you've taken off in an airplane, you are now committed to flying that airplane, period. You know, you're in the sky and whatever happens, I don't care if you lose an engine, if you suck, you know, geese into both engines and have to land in the Hudson, like you are now flying that airplane. So, so once you've committed to this direction, if it is new, if, if you are doing something that has not been done before, you are going to have to invent. You're going to have to innovate. You're going to have to build things that have not been built. And in most cases, building those things is going to cause other problems. And therefore, you are going to have to build yet more things, assuming those are new problems to the world. And in Square's case, because we were trying to serve artists and small businesses and people who you know, didn't have the credentials to work with the existing banking system, we had to build not just new hardware and software, but new underwriting, uh, new client service. 
we had uh, new refund policies. We had 14 things that were different about Square. And what I realized was even Amazon, as powerful as they are, had trouble copying all of those 14 things simultaneously. As a matter of fact, some of them, they really couldn't copy because they were things that had evolved over three years that you just can't overnight. Like for instance, if you are trying to fight fraud and you don't have you know, a couple hundred million transactions to train your systems against, uh, the fraud will kill you. And I don't know if Amazon you know, faced problems like that, but my guess is that they weren't able to do the 14 things that we did in the time that they gave themselves. And so that to me was the thing that allowed us to survive. And that's, that's what I call an innovation stack. It's this interlocking set of inventions. So, I mean, I guess we keep talking planes. So let's talk about the first plane, right? Let's talk about the right flyer. Let's talk about this, this thing that first put man in the sky. And everyone looks at it and says, oh, well, the Wright brothers, you know, kind of figured out the airfoil. That was their thing. But that wasn't the only thing, right? right I mean, right. first of all, they had to get an engine. Right. And the engines were too heavy. So they had to make an engine out of aluminum, which had never been done before. So they get this, you know, sort of high horsepower to weight engine. And, and, and then it has to turn propellers. Well, nobody knew how to build a propeller. Right. So they have to invent the propeller and they have to figure out all the drive systems. And then they get in the air and now they have to figure out how to steer because nobody knew how to steer in the air because, well, nobody had been in the air. And then once you're in the air, you got to figure out how to land. But nobody figured that out because, well, nobody had been in the air. You know, so, so all of the things that you think of in it as an airplane are little inventions that, that relate to each other. So, okay, you put this, this engine in, but now it's heavier. So now all your structures have to be heavier. So, uh, I mean, you're inventing and inventing and inventing. And if you look at the history of, of not just business, but just the way humanity moves forward, you see at the beginning of every major invention, there is this thing that I call an innovation stack that is a series of interlocking inventions. And if you create one of those, you end up being almost always the dominant company in the market. And uh, in the book, what I do is I look back, uh, well, I started 100 years ago, and I look at all of these different industries all over the world that have seen this same pattern. And the reason we don't see the pattern that often in daily life is um, is because we don't have words to describe it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm thinking of a couple of examples, but you look at the examples of um, like Kodak, I guess, and uh, oh, yeah. or Polaroid. I mean, they did dominate it, but then the, you got to be careful too that if you don't adapt and continue to innovate, right, you'll get left by the wayside. Is that, you see what I'm saying? Yes, so it's... Uh, there, there's a force that um, I think rules our lives more than anything else, uh, and that is copying. Yeah. And almost everything is a copy. Uh, so right now I'm talking to you um, on a laptop. Uh, this was not the original laptop. There have been literally thousands of laptop computers and computers before this. Um, uh, I'm sitting on a couch, which... There's nothing unique about this couch. There have been couches and materials, like literally everything in the room that I'm looking at, including me, is a copy. I mean, I'm a copy of my parents, not, not a perfect copy, uh, but we are all basically copies of precursors of things that worked. And that is the way it should be. Okay. So when you uh, get into a plane and take off, you don't want that plane to be some experimental thing where they've just decided for the first time, you know, to try out some new composite fiber, um, where you're going to load, you know, 300 passengers in and, you know, cross an ocean. Like, <laughs> right. You want the stuff to be tested. So copying is almost always the best solution to any problem. Find somebody else who's done it, do what they did, except for one thing. It doesn't give you new things. It doesn't give you significant new advances. But because copying is such a strong force, it is the thing that sort of stops us from innovating. 
Right. So what I wanted to do was write a book in the first person. So it's a book where I talk about, you know, how it felt to me, but then to also tie it into hundreds of years of history and say, look, the people who do these amazing things have one thing in common. And that is none of us were qualified. And I'm making air quotes right now, which you can't see because this is a podcast, but I make a qualified in quotation marks to do what we did. Biggest bank in the world, biggest bank in the world formed by a guy who never went to high school, sold produce. He was a produce vendor, builds the biggest bank in the world. Biggest furniture store in the world, started by a kid who was 17 years old. So young, he had to have an adult sign the incorporation papers for what became IKEA. Um, dominant airline in the US uh, for years, Southwest. You're right. And I had a great interview. Actually, I probably had the last interview with Herb Kelleher when he was alive. And Herb told me the story of Southwest. And, you know, Herb's an attorney. Like he doesn't know yeah, anything about the airline industry. Right. Or I should say he didn't. Now he, you know, uh, he, he became probably the greatest expert uh, in, in, in travel, uh, you know, because of what they learned at Southwest. But in all of these cases, at the start of these world-changing companies, there was somebody who wasn't qualified. There was somebody who, if you'd looked at them on paper, you would not have hired them for the job. Yeah, I, I love that. And it's a theme that that resonates deeply with me because I, I like you, I'm hearing from you. It's like when you go into any situation, we look at these, at human beings in general, I'm a firm believer, and I didn't used to look at this at myself, but you already have all the tools that you need to be, to do something really significant. It's already there inside of you. And so it's not about, I need to be a better X, Y, Z. I need to be a better leader. I need to be a better entrepreneur. I need to be, you know, you need to, un to, to me, it's about, you need to unleash what's already inside of you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's scary. Okay. Oh, well, that's because the thing, and that's the part. It's, it, it takes a, because that's really the key. And when we go back, when I go back to that original question, it's like, why did I not take the leap, and why did you? It really comes down to courage. It really does. And 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 and, and well, go ahead. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's courage because I don't think of it as courage because I don't think of myself as a courageous person. Um, I'm pretty scared doing most stuff. Like for instance, you know, when I fly, uh, I'm terrified. Like I'm. I only know how to fly a plane scared. Like I'm always like, there's this always this mild level of panic. Um, when I'm in, uh, the cockpit, when I'm in the left seat, I am going to be nervous. Um, I've never gotten over that. Now I've learned how to fly when I'm nervous. Um, and I've learned how to do all the stuff that I need to do. Um, and I think I'm a safe pilot, but I also understand that I'm probably never going to get to this point where I just don't, worry about anything. Um, and, and so I, I, I'm not saying that if, if people are courageous, that that's bad. I mean, I'm just saying that that's not my move. Okay. Well, I don't, but I, I don't, but I would, I, I would argue with you that, that what you just described is, is the ultimate definition of courage. I mean, the, to me, the fear of the uncertainty never goes away. I get it. I mean, I'm with you. I'm constantly, whether I'm getting ready and I'm a, I'm a pretty good speaker. I'm a pretty good leadership coach. I'm a really good pilot. Yeah. All those things I just listed, yeah, I have fear and uncertainty on certain things. Now I'm more comfortable than I than I was in the past, but that I think that's where the danger is because you can get complacent. I think the fear and the uncertainty is a blessing. It never goes away because it's a barometer of probably what you should be focused on, right? Just like you said, like, but, but when you work through it and you continue to go through despite that, that's courage to me. And that's when something significant happens. It's not about being fearless. I, I think, you know, you look at all those courageous acts. I mean, going back to the Sully example, I mean, when you, when we, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes, he said that was the most pit of the stomach falling to the floor. You know, he was petrified. Yeah. And, and people go, really? You were so calm, cool, and collected. Well, I had no other choice, but he worked through it. That's so that to me, that's the definition of courage. So I wouldn't think that. So I, I would think it's courageous because you're still fearful. Your knees are shaking and you're wobbly and you're about to puke, 
but you work through it. And when you work through it, something significant happens on the other end. That's, that's, okay. that's my take. Yeah. I, I, I'd accept that definition. The, the, the want to puke part. Yeah. I, yeah, okay. <laughs> right. We're on the same page. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, what I wanted to do, uh, was reach out to the, to the people who disqualify themselves because they yeah, think that love courage it. is lack of fear. Exactly. I love it. And I get, I get what you're saying. And, I, and that's why I love what you're trying to do with this book. And I think that is so needed for people to hear. And again, it's, it's a theme that I love talking about on the show. And it's a theme that, again, reveals itself time and time again. That tenacity, that, all, that never giving up, that understanding that that fear and uncertainty is always going to be with you, no matter what level of experience or how much life stink you get on you, it's always going to be there. But if you stay the, I mean, you just continue to go forward because that, I, I only think that when it boils down to it, that's the only thing that separates the people that do it and the people that don't, you know, that that's really, it just comes down to tenacity and that takes courage. Yeah. And the ability to take that first step. The, um, exactly. And, it's huge. And, and, and it was funny because as I was researching the book, so, so my process was this, basically it took me it took me two years of study to figure out what the heck was happening, why Amazon didn't just eviscerate Square. And, and I spent two years trying to find other companies that had been in similar situations. And I couldn't, I just had never, I couldn't find anybody. So then one day um, I was actually uh, in a, uh, at a party in a palace in Spain. And I saw that the, library contained the original letters of Christopher Columbus. And, and this, this family in Spain had actually backed Columbus. They'd been part of his, you know, sort of venture capital. <laughs> and I looked at what Columbus had written to these people. And I thought about it. I was like, oh my God, you know, Columbus was kind of an entrepreneur in some ways. Like here's a guy who did something that had not been done before. Yeah, big time. I mean, you know, if if I do something and my company fails, I don't die. But if comp, if you know, if Columbus sets off sailing uh, in a direction that nobody has really returned from, uh, and keeps going until he hits some new piece of land that nobody has found, um, then if he's wrong, he's dead, and everybody who's with him is dead. And I thought about that, and I was like, oh my god, this guy was facing similar types of problems you know, with a hundred times the implication. And when I realized that Columbus was, you know, sort of struggling with the same stuff, I thought, oh my God, well, that's the, that's the answer. I just need to look back in history. And so I started looking back in history and that's when I saw all these companies who had had this same phenomenon occur at their start. And that's why I wanted to, you know, sort of explain this because Look, if you want to do, if you want to be successful in business, do something that's already been done. Okay. You want to open a coffee shop? God bless you. There are lots of coffee shops. Okay. You can figure it out. You can go to a coffee trade show where you can see the different ways people have done it. You can go to trade shows in most industries and figure out from experts, from people who've done it successfully, how to do something. And you can, do that again. Uh, it, it can be management consult. It, it, you can you can pick almost anything that's been done, and find an expert, and just they will give you a formula, and you execute that. That is going to give you success in business. If you want to do something that has not been done before, if you want to solve a problem that the world has not figured out how to do yet, now you're in the world of entrepreneurship. And by entrepreneurship, I mean what the original definition of entrepreneurship was, because there was a old economist, Joseph Schumpeter, who coined the term or basically popularized the term entrepreneur, because at the time he needed a word to describe something different than business. You know, business was this sort of rational, same thing where, you know, you could present poor pro formas and have a business plan and people understood and the investors would back you. Entrepreneurship was this thing that hadn't been done before. It was this sort of crazy behavior. And so what I wanted to do was shine a light on what it's like to do something that hasn't been done before. And what's that, you know, how is that different? And it turns out it's different in a bunch of ways. I love that you kind of, I, I've never really had entrepreneurship put in that perspective, but you're absolutely right. And if I go out and start a 
coffee shop. It's been done a million times. Yeah. I'm not necessarily, you know, and, and, it's, and again, it's not to say, hey, you don't belong in the entrepreneurship club. I think sometimes I see that, right? Like, um, but you're, you're absolutely right. Entrepreneurship is, is something different. You know, creating square, uh, doing something innovative is, is more of the definition of entrepreneurship than someone who's going to start the local cafe on the corner, right? Doesn't mean that you're, you're yeah, I hate. Yeah, it's, it's awkward. It's, look, it's, it's, it's awkward to sit there and divide business into two categories. One is businesses that have been done and the solution is known. And the other one is businesses that have not been done and the solution is unknown. And it's a little bit insulting because we tend to put a lot of um, value on words like innovation and uh, you know doing things new and independence and all that stuff. Those tend to be you know words that are really um, valued. Originality, you know, people like to be original. But here's the thing: that's not right. Like, if you want to be successful, you are much, much, much more likely to be successful as a business person than as an entrepreneur. Okay, if you do something that is known, um, you know, so I opened a roofing company, okay? It's one of the things I did. Guess what? I copied everything. I, I, I mean, I hired the same crews. I used the same three-tab shingles. I, like, I did everything that a roofing company is supposed to do, okay? And I didn't invent a thing in my roofing company. Um, and, and I had a roofing company. And you know what? The roofing company made money. Okay, that was that was a roofing company, and it 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 was I won't say a guarantee success because nothing's a guarantee, but I like there was nothing in the roofing company that I had to solve originally. I just had to find somebody who knew how to do that, um, and that was a, a, a perfectly valid business. Starting Square, uh, we wanted to find some thing that we could copy. It's just that because of the problem that we had chosen, we had chosen the goal of allowing individuals and very small businesses to accept credit cards. And nobody had ever done that. And so none of the tools existed. So all of those tools had to be built. They first had to be invented, and then we had to fashion them. And because of that, we were forced to be inventors. Forced to be. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying forced to be because like it's now survival. You take off in the plane. Okay. So the, 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 the stupid thing you do is you take off in the plane. Okay. And once those wheels are off the runway, you are literally, let's say you're in the plane with yourself. Okay. Just let's not kill two people here. Uh, but if, 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 if I take off in a little plane by myself, the second the wheels are off the runway, I am the pilot in command. I'm the guy who has to make the decisions. Okay. And at that point, it's just do the right things. Do make your make your decisions. Square was a situation where we chose to do something that had never been done before. And because of that, we could not copy our way to success. We had to copy, I mean, we copied what we could, but a lot of stuff we had to invent. And we invented so many things that it became this stack of innovation that ultimately protected the company and you know drove what I think was the majority of Square's success. I can sit here and talk to you for hours about all of this stuff. I can't believe that we're almost approaching an hour talking. It's just amazing how quick it goes. When the book comes out in March 20th. Yes, the book, I, I apologize. So, so I got to tell you something about the book. Okay. The book was not supposed to be a business book. Okay. It started off with half business book, half graphic novel. Okay? Right. right. <laughs> like it was cartoons because uh, so many of these stories that I tell about these other people are so dramatic that I didn't think it was appropriate to tell them in words. So I decided to illustrate it. So there are they're like they're literally chapters that are nothing but cartoons. Um, my publisher hated that. So oh, when I really? submitted the, the book <laughs> to the publisher, they were like, Jim, do you realize how many people in podcasts are not going to be able to read your stupid graphic novel? Uh, or not podcasts, but I mean like audiobooks. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and, and they were like, and e-readers, you know, they, they read this on their phone. They're not going to be able to see any of this stuff. It's, it's just a disaster. So, so my publisher killed the graphic novel part of my book and I had to rewrite it as text. But um, but I went ahead anyway and produced a comic book for the stuff that I had to cut out. So um, uh, it's it's not 
something you can buy, but it's something that if you pre-order the book um, at jimmckelvey.com, uh, we will give you a the comics that were cut out. So you can you can actually, I mean, you can buy the book, but if you if you want the book and the comic, which I would recommend, um, uh, at, at jimmckelvey.com, uh, I have a special link where you can you, you can order the book and at the same time either get an electronic version of the copy comic or uh, or I'll send you one on uh, you know an old fashioned newsprint you know just like the old uh, comic books from the fifties and sixties. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. My daughter's creating a graphic novel. She's a big cartoonist. In uh, fact, she's Square that has been so helpful for her business too. By the way. Oh, that's great. I love, I love hearing stories like that. Yeah. She's, you know, with her fan base and everything else, I mean, Square and, and the freelance stuff that she does and the, it's really cool. Yeah. I got to get paid. Got to get yeah. paid. Well, man, such an awesome conversation. The book is the innovation stack building an unbeatable business. One crazy idea at a time comes out on March 20th or t- March 10th, March 10th, March 10th, March 10th. And I think you can pre-order anytime before that, but, um, and then go to, yeah, your website, which I'll have a link to on this post at doseofleadership.com. Cool. Uh, connect with Jim and he will send you either electronically or a hard copy of the cartoon side of the book that is his editor made him cut out. So, but I'm anxious to see both of this. I'm really looking forward to this book, Jim. Um, it, it, it hits so many points that we talk about here on this show from the limiting belief to the taking the courageous first step to unleashing the entrepreneur that probably resides in more people than, than they think, right? There's so many people that don't see themselves as leaders, as entrepreneurs, as business people. Yeah, that's, that's the big thing. And, and if, I could say, if I could say one thing to your listeners, it's people who listen to this podcast probably are less limited with self-doubt than, than others. In other words, you're taking the first step. You're listening to this. You, you just invested an hour of your time. You're doing the right stuff, and you're probably going to be one of the ones who takes a leap. So that's cool. But, and, and I'd love you to have the book. Please, if it helps, that would be really wonderful. But what I want people to do is give the book to somebody who they think has the qualifications to do it, has, has the ability to do something special, but just doesn't have that ability to, See to take themselves. off, yeah. you know? Like that's, that's what I want to do. I would love to have you buy the book and then hand it to that person, you know, in your life who has all that potential and is not realizing it because they don't feel qualified. And that's the thing I see with so many bright, talented people. I know they'd be successful. Um, I've, I've got a family member. I don't want to embarrass that person, so I'm not going to use their name, but I've got a family member who I know they would just kick ass if they could get mm-hmm. going. But they 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 they, they, they rationally look at this and they yep. say, well, I'm not qualified to do that, Jim. I couldn't do that because, and then they fill in the blank with you know this this thing. And I and what I say is, look, that's right. If you're doing something that's already been done, like if you want to be a pilot, you got to go get trained. You got to go get certified. There's 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 a process to being able to fly a plane, and and we will teach you that process. It's been done before. You don't have to invent anything. But if you want to do something that has never been done before, then you are as qualified or unqualified as the rest of us. And that's who I wrote the book for. I love it. I love that message. You're absolutely right. Great call to action for all the listeners out there. You're absolutely right. And it's part of the challenge or the part of the obligation I think we all have is to add value to others, find, find ways to add value to every transaction in life getting this book, finding that person. And you're right. You can see it. You can see the people around you that are, that is in your circle that needs that extra push. And I love that call to action. Awesome, awesome stuff, man. Well, um, any, any other ways for people to connect with you? I'll have the website on there. Any other ways to connect with you? So um, I, most of my communications through jimmckelvey.com. I apologize. I don't really use social media. Um, and uh, the reason I don't is because I find that I get really stressed out and unhappy <laughs> Amen. Uh, if I have too much contact with things that I don't control. So um, I don't watch local news. Don't take it personally. I don't tweet very much. Um, I don't do Facebook and, and, and Instagram. And um, I, I haven't checked my LinkedIn account in years. I, 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 I apologize for that because I know people want to get in touch, but um, the way I do that right now is through uh, essays and stuff on that I write on jimmckelvey.com and then through books and, and, 
and through my organizations. And I apologize for not being as, you know, as, as accessible as I could be, but that's, that's just to preserve my sanity. Well, nothing wrong or nothing to apologize over for that. We could all probably, and the, the world would probably be a better place if we did more of what you did. So I commend you for that. Jim, what a fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on the show and, and so proud to have you in the Dose of Leadership Circle. Richard, thank you so much for the invitation. And this has been super fun. Awesome. Talk to you okay. soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dose of Leadership. I do appreciate your support. If you could do a couple of things for me, go subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast app. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you could do that for me, I would truly appreciate it. Also, if you're interested in working with me, if you're interested in some team leadership training, go to doseofleadership.com and check out Legacy Leader Blueprint. I understand how difficult it can be to get effective leadership training for your team. It never seems like you have the time or the budget. My course, Legacy Leader Blueprint, solves that problem. Quality leadership training that doesn't disrupt your busy schedule or break your budget. 20 high-impact videos and 6 hours of live group coaching with me that will allow you and your team to become true leaders of influence. I will teach you how to defeat mediocrity and stagnation, create high-impact cultures of initiative, and build empowered teams with high degrees of trust. Go check out doseofleadership.com, click on Legacy Leader Blueprint, and enroll your team today.